Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Sedalia, Missouri. In this sermon, Pastor Chris Guffey concludes his series, No Regrets, No Reserve, No Retreat. Join us as we dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In a very simple way, if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 11 down to verse number 15 and conclude our series here on No Regrets no reserves, and no retreat. We've been on this series now for several weeks. We took a a couple of pauses along the way, but we've been in this series for several weeks, and uh, we've been talking about this this theme uh, of being a people who live without regret. That is that we are not tied down to the past, nor are we wanting to go back to the failures of the past, but that we are a people who have turned over a new leaf, that we are a people who are different in Christ Jesus, And because of that, we are also a people who live without reserves. That is, we are sold completely out, committed fully to the person and work of Christ and his proclamation. And therefore, then we are a people without retreat as an option. In other words, we understand that there is a culture around us that is consumed by the darkness, that darkness is spreading, but we are the light and that light must press forward in the days ahead. In those discussions over the last several weeks, we have seen even most recently that we do not or should not approach all of these things through our own strength. I think that is the natural temptation when we hear the stories, when we work through the passages. I think the natural temptation is to say, you know, we can do this. We have strength. We have courage. We have resolve. We can press forward together. And yet that is not what the apostle intended to belay to us in this moment. Instead, he intends for us to understand that we don't regret, we don't, re, uh, we don't retreat, we don't live with reserves, not because of our own strength, but rather because of the strength that is provided for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember that last week or two weeks ago, the apostle wrote about how we are afflicted, but we are not crushed, meaning that as the people of Christ, we are not immune from difficult circumstance and trial and and chaos. We are perplexed, he says, but we are not in despair. We are not uh, uh, left uh, immune, uh, so to speak, from from, uh, situations in life that leave us wondering and questioning, but we are people in Christ. We are people who are not driven to despair in such moments. We are people who are persecuted. We are not liked because of our faithful commitment to Christ, and yet we are not forsaken. We are struck down, he says, and yet we are not destroyed. He said we were instead jars of clay, or some translations read we are earthen vessels, meaning that we are ordinary or simple in every way. We are something that you might expect to find in an ordinary household, uh, but we are invaluable because of something that is inside of us. We are filled with a treasure. And Paul says that that is to show in verse number seven of chapter four, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to me. I've tried to illustrate over the last couple of weeks and speak at length about our need to burn our ships like Alexander the Great. That is to not accept retreat as an option in the present age. I talked about how we need to understand the time of the phony war is over. Uh, Back in World War II, in the early stages, there was a time marked by hiding and fortifying one's held positions and just trying to defend those instead of pressing forward. And we talked about how Paul challenges the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4 to not have that mindset, not to hide and not to withdraw from our cities, not to fortify taken positions, but rather to press forward because the army of the Lord Jesus Christ can 
cannot be defeated. The gates of hell cannot withstand the marching of the gospel. And then we talked about how our weapon that God has given to us to go into this darkness is not the typical weapon we might expect, but rather it is the weapon of the gospel, that we have no power this morning to change the world except the power that is given to us in the proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What I've done and what I wish to do this morning, or what I haven't done yet, however, that I wish to do this morning is we have in all of those discussions never really talked about what victory really looks like. In all of these discussions about gaining ground, what does that mean? In all these discussions about pressing forward, what do we mean by that? You see, in life, beloved, we always hit what we're aiming at. Whatever our target is, whatever we set our sights upon, that is what we will reach. And I believe one of the problems within the church, one of the problems within many faithful believers in Jesus Christ is we don't know what victory looks like. We don't know what success looks like. We don't know what the target is that we're supposed to be aiming at, and therefore we never seem to really hit it. For example, in driving school, there's a principle known as target fixation. They also use this in schools about shooting and self-defense. But simply defined, a target fixation is that when you get your mind so focused on a singular object, your body will naturally always go towards it. So, for example, if you were going to motorcycle school this morning, they would tell you that when you're driving a motorcycle, you should always keep your gaze forward and not to the side, but constantly focus on where it is you want to go, and the body will naturally steer you there. Or some of our police officers in the room might tell us that, conversely, a lot of accidents happen because of target fixation. You see something in the road. You see something happening, and you want to avoid it, but you can't take your eyes off of it. It captures your attention to the point that you naturally steer into that very thing which you want to, not, or to avoid. That's target fixation. Conversely, the same is true about goals and ambitions in life. We understand that the Christian is called to glorify Christ with his life. That is, that the aim of my life this morning, the aim of your life, should be to make Jesus Christ look good so that others are drawn to him. And we wonder, what does that look like? We wonder, what does that look like on a practical level? If that is our target, how do I move myself towards that? It's easy to understand with missionaries, right? We see them go across the globe, and we see how they make Christ famous because they go and proclaim the gospel to the far ends of the earth. We see it in the pastors and the preaching of the word. You know, it's easy to see how they glorify Christ. But what does glorifying Christ mean to the everyday believer? For the one who sits in the pews on a Sunday morning who works that nine-to-five job, what does it look like for the everyday, ordinary, average believer, so to speak? What does that look like from a simple application standpoint? I think most of the time we kind of assume, and rightfully so, that it speaks of the quality of their character. In other words, to glorify Christ means that I would be a moral person, that I would be different from those that are around me, those that are not in Christ, that I would act different, that I would speak different, that I would look different, maybe even that I would dress different, that I would have different attitudes towards things. And all of that is true, absolutely true. You glorify Christ in just being different, being the light in the midst of the darkness, being the salt in the earth. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But I would challenge you this morning that I think there's even more to it than that. What does glorifying Christ look like in my life? Maybe I could illustrate it differently. Maybe I could illustrate it with a question and using a different terminology. If I asked you this morning, what does success in your life look like? 
how would you define it? You see, I think that's where we've reached at the end of this series is that we have to define what success is. And I think many believers don't really understand how to determine and how to define what success is. And if you can't define what success is, then you certainly can't ever achieve it. It's easy in most areas of life to define success, isn't it? For example, in school, success is very easy to identify and define. You have to have good grades and good behavior, and there are tangible markers along the way. We call them tests. They tell us whether or not I'm being successful. Success in sports is easy to to, to define. It has markable, tangible milestones as well. For example, if you're in basketball, the more points you score, you, you score more points than the other teams, that's success. In golf, it's the opposite. Take less strokes than your opponent, and that's success. In baseball, more runners cross the plate than the other team, that's success. In sprints, you run a particular distance, and you try to run it faster than the other people, and that's success. In cross country, you don't die. That's success, right? In soccer, who cares? But there's a success. There's a tangible marker that you try to identify, and it's easy to determine what success looks like. Success in business is easy to identify. It's simple enough. You have a product, you try to sell that product. And as you sell that product, you try to pay your bills. Paying your bills includes paying for the product, the wholesale cost, as well as your employees, their insurance, and all of those things. And then everything that is left over is the definition of what success is. And whether or not you are more successful or less successful determines by how much is left over once you have sold your product and paid your bills. All throughout this series over four weeks, I've talked about the victory that you and I as believers in Christ that we experience. I want you to know this morning, we cannot fail. I've said it over and over again, and I'll say it from, I'll shout it from the rooftops on this day. You and I cannot fail today because Christ has already defeated the enemy through a bloody cross. That was Paul's message to the Colossians, that he had made an open spectacle of the principalities and powers of this world through his death on the cross of Calvary. But what does success look like in a tangible, practical way in my life? I think I'm really aware of that type of question at certain moments in life. I think most of the time we try to avoid that question. Am I being successful in my calling? Am I being successful in what God has determined for me? And try as we may, we try to avoid it, but we all reach moments, pivotal, solemn moments where we come face to face with that question. And for me, most often we come face to face with that at funerals. See, as I sit down with families and we talked about what they want shared about their loved one whose service we'll be officiating or attending, you listen to the rehashing of life, right? And it's always interesting to hear what stories people want told and what they say about what they want said in that final service over their loved one. And in some cases, you have a loved one who has known that they were nearing the end, and they will even say to the pastor, they'll say to their family, I want these things said about me. And over the years, what I've seen is some wanted to talk about their personalities. They wanted to talk about how the deceased loved life, how they were quick with a joke, how they laughed, how they were tender, how they were empathetic, uh, how they related to the world around them. Others took great pride in their careers. They had worked for 50 years at a particular business, or they had achieved certain milestones, or they had accomplished certain things. And some, and, and rightfully so, probably the majority, oftentimes want to talk about their family. She was 
the mother of five children and 20 grandchildren and 13 great-grandchildren, and she, and she did these things with her family, and she raised them in the church, and the list kind of goes on and on from there. But as a pastor, oftentimes it's quite discouraging. When you hear people trying to figure out what they want to be said about that deceased one, that deceased loved one, because I always think to myself, what will they say about me when I die, right? What do I want them to say about me? If I were to die in an unfortunate event tomorrow, what, what would I want my, my, my spouse and my children to say about me? What would I want those who would come to the service, what would I want them to hear was the message of my life? In short, what did it mean to be successful in life as a believer in Jesus Christ? We can make it more corporate in our asking. What does it mean to be successful as a church? How do we define success within the, the bounds of these walls, so to speak? Is it found in the number of people in attendance? Is it found in the size of the budget? Is it found in the number of programs? Is it found in the size of the building, right? Before you dismiss that question, I would remind you that you always hit what you're aiming at, target fixation. You will always hit what you are aiming at. You will drive where you are looking. Is it possible, and, and I believe it is, is it possible that the frustration we see in so many believers with their lives is simply a frustration born out of the inability to define what success really looks like? Is it possible that churches are frustrated because they have this inability to clearly define what success looks like within the boundaries of their walls, within the boundaries of their ministry? Is it possible that we don't know what it is we're supposed to be aiming for, and so we're never hitting the target that our heart says we should be aiming for? We're always shooting for a target that we've never clearly identified, and does Scripture tell us what it should be? Chapter number four, the apostle really laid out our identity as a people in Christ. And I want to remind you of a couple of the bullet points along the way. In verse number one, he told us that we are a people who are deserving of God's wrath, but that instead we have received a ministry. We've been given a job to do. He uses that little word mercy to speak about how you and I are really nothing before a holy God, that we are deserving of his wrath. And yet, even though we were deserving of his wrath, he sent Christ to die on our behalf. And having died on our behalf, he gave us a new life. And in that life, he gave us something to do, a purpose of existence. In verse number two, we're told that we are a people who have rejected the sinful tenor of the world, and instead we found a new life in Christ. We've forsaken old ways. We're not going to go back and do things the way that the non-believer does them, but we're going to do things different because of our commitment to Christ. In verses 3 and 4, we're a people who have been given a light in the midst of the darkness, an understanding in the midst of the confusion, a clarity in the midst of the chaos in Christ Jesus. In verse number five, we are a people who are not in the business of promoting ourselves, but rather we are a people who are in the business of promoting Christ. Verses 7, 11 through 11, we are earthen vessels or jars of clay as the English Standard Version puts it. We are ordinary in every way, but then he says we are in possession of a great treasure. We are uh, ordinary in every way, but we are not unvaluable, but rather we are invaluable because of a treasure inside of us, the treasure of Jesus Christ. And like the rest of the world, we face difficulty and chaos, but unlike the rest of the world, we are not broken. We are not abandoned. We are not in despair. 
Because that treasure that is inside of us holds us together, keeps our walls, as it were, from collapsing. And now the apostle turns his pen from chapter 4 and begins to write chapter 5. He wants us to join that identity that he so clearly outlined in chapter 4 with a clear definition of our purpose of life. He defines what success looks like for you and me. He defines what our target is. He defines where we should aim our rifles this morning. Would you see it with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, again, verses 11 down to verse 15. It's really set out for us. Our purpose is really set out for us in a simple phrase in verse number 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, he writes, we persuade others. That word, therefore, joins the statement to all of his previous statements. We've already identified chapter 4. The believer in Christ is imperfect, but the gist, the summary of his, or the thesis of his argument is that as imperfect as we are, we hold the treasure of the gospel inside of us, the treasure of Christ. And then as you come into chapter 5, the first couple of verses, the immediate words that are spoken at the beginning of chapter 5 are a reminder to us as believers that this world is not our home this morning. That's a reminder I need to know all the time. This life, it's full of all kinds of trouble. There are struggles here from sickness and disease to natural disaster and, and pain and struggles. This life, though, Paul is telling us at the beginning of the chapter, is not our home. What's important is not what is in this life because this life will pass away. It's fleeting. What's important is not this body because this body is perishing. What is important is the life and the body that God gives to us in Christ, which will never be taken away, which we will have for all of eternity. What matters is not the struggles of this life. For one day, you and I are going to set aside the struggles of this life for all of eternity, and we will take up the joys of heaven. And all the years of this present world will seem to us as no more than a distant memory. I wonder if we'll even remember them at all. I long for that day, don't you? When all the struggles of this life and all the pain of this body are set aside for all the glory of heaven revealed to me for all of eternity. Therefore, Paul says, because of that, because of my identity in Christ, that who I am is not defined by the world. Rather, who I am is defined by the person and work of Christ on my behalf. Therefore, because this world is fleeting and passing away, because this body is fleeting and passing away and pales in comparison to all of eternity, therefore, because of those things, he writes, I know the fear of the Lord. I was thinking about this this morning, Brother Royal, and I was thinking about working with youth over the years as a youth pastor, and our educators can relate to this, and how often students would be fearful about something, how often they would be anxious about something. And I would often take time to talk to my students about the difference between healthy and unhealthy fears. Unhealthy fears are fears that are illogical. They're not rooted in reality. They don't really make sense, right? Unhealthy fears are fears that are paralyzing to inactivity. I get overwhelmed by something so that I do nothing at all. They lead us to a place where we don't do anything positive. Unhealthy fears are fears that are undefined. They're things that I can't really put my finger on. They're things that I don't really know how to articulate and define. Or, nor, and because of that, I don't know how to defeat them. But by contrast, in life, there are also healthy fears. Healthy fears are logical in nature. They make sense. 
the fear of driving too fast that you might get pulled over and get a ticket from Daniel, right? That is a healthy fear. Uh, that is a healthy fear. It's logical. It makes sense. Or the fear of not wanting a child to touch a stove because knowing that if they touch that stove, it will burn them. And while I've never put my hand on the stove, I have enough fear to proactively motivate me not to put my hand there, right? There are healthy fears that motivate us to action. I'm afraid of discipline, so I can't. So I go and I get my work done. Healthy fears are fears that are clearly marked and defined. I know for certain, certain who it is or what it is that I am afraid of. In this case, the apostle lays out a healthy fear for the believer in Christ. He says that it is the fear of the Lord. Because of who I am in Christ, because of my relationship with Christ, because I know that this world is passing and fleeting all too fast, and I will soon stand in judgment before a holy God for all of eternity, because of those things, I have a healthy fear of the Lord. Because I know my identity, because I know that I'm a great sinner in need of God's grace, and I have received that grace, I have a healthy fear of God. Because I know that this world is not the real end, because I know that this world is really insignificant in comparison to eternity, because I know that all of this will one day come to an end, and all men and women will stand before a holy God in judgment, because of all that, I have a healthy fear he says, of the Lord. It's a logical fear. He's sovereign. God is the creator of all things. He rules and reigns over all things. It's a motivational fear, a fear of God that changes my actions, changes my, my decisions, determines my directions. If I fear the Lord, then I don't want to do that which displeases him because I know who he is. And it is a fear that is clearly defined. It is a fear of God's wrath and judgment either poured out on me or it is a fear that, I, that he would pour out that wrath and judgment on the people around me, including those that I love so dearly. Because I know who I am, because I know what the world is, I have, Paul says, this healthy fear of God, which he then says persuade, uh, causes me to persuade others. I've gotten really hung up on that significant word persuade. I've found great significance in it all week long. Oftentimes in Christianity, we don't think in terms of, of, uh, of persuasion. We think in a different term. We think in the term like uh, conversion, right? And rightfully so. Conversion speaks of a total transformation of the heart and the mind and the person, right? It speaks of a movement from one thing into another thing. I go from one thing to becoming something altogether different than what I was. If I stepped back several weeks now and I went back to our series where we were learning in Romans, we can even define that conversion, that I am transformed, Paul argues there in the Roman letter, from the object of God's wrath to a place where I am now holy and beloved by God. I go from that which God hates, his enemy, to that which he loves, his son or his daughter. And we know that that conversion is not something that we do because of our study in Romans. It's something that is done upon us by the Spirit of God. That conversion is something that transforms us, makes us new, that we receive by simple childlike faith. That believe that what Christ did on the cross was good enough to pay the penalty for our sin. Because conversion is something that God does in me, it is instantaneous. It is rapid. It is a fast acting, so to speak. It is something that God does in the immediate. But persuasion, that's something altogether different, isn't it? 
Persuasion is something that takes time. It's something that is a development. Arguments need to be made. A flow of logic is developed. There is a back and forth, a procedure to development of the discussion, right? One side begins in one place and the other side begins in another place. And they deliberate with one another until one side is brought to the other side or until one side brings the other side along with them. The sides here in Paul's mind in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 are clearly defined by that second word, that word others. You know, today we live in a culture that desperately hates contrast, don't we? We want everybody to fit inside a box. We want everybody to be exactly the same. There are no, in a word, there are no others in our life, in our world, in our existence. Everybody is exactly the same. That's why on a philosophical level we can't define genders. There aren't women and there aren't men because everybody is really the same. There is no distinction in our philosophical worldview. We do standardized testing in school because everyone is really the same and they should be measured according to the same metrics. Terms that separate one group from another are discarded. They are bigoted. They are prejudiced. They are unfriendly. They are to be thrown away because the idea of contrast is problematic. We do not like the idea that there are distinctions and differences in our world today and in people, so to speak. In fact, I just had this discussion with, uh, with one of our principals this week. Uh, we had a, a fun discussion about a number of things, and one of the things I pointed out to him was, I said, when did we stop using the term report card, right? When I was in school, we would get a report card, and it clearly defined you got an A, you got a B, you got a C, you got a D, and you got an F. Now I get an email that says we got a progress report. And he said, because report card is offensive. <laughs> report card says this person has succeeded or they have failed. Progress report says, eh, it's not really that cut and dry. It's not that black or white. They are moving in a certain direction. We do not like contrast in our philosophical worldviews. In this culture, we do not like for people to stand out, to be distinct, to be different. And yet here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle clearly lays out two distinct groups of people. There are those who are earthen vessels or jars of clay who hold a treasure inside of them. And then as we come to 2 Corinthians 5, there are others. In other words, implying that they are earthen vessels, jars of clay, just like the first group, except they do not have that treasure within them. They are not the same, right? And that becomes a key central point. The distinction between them then in that moment is not their gender. It's not their genetic makeup. It's not their socioeconomic background. It's not their mental abilities. It's not their cultural status. The distinction between those who are earthen vessels with treasure inside and the others is not the outside covering, for he has described the, char, the church as these earthen vessels, ordinary, everyday household objects. The distinction between them is what is on the inside of them, that which is not seen by the naked eye. That point he clearly elaborates when he writes to the Galatians in chapter 3 and verse 28, where there he writes that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The distinctive quality which separates one from the others for the Apostle Paul is not the outside, is not the vessel itself, but the treasure that is inside Jesus Christ. 
And in Christ, Paul will argue to the churches of Galatia that all are, are on, standing on equal ground. Now, Paul, the others have, have distorted and twisted his meaning there in Galatians chapter 3 as though there is no distinction. Paul is not suggesting in Galatians 3 that there are no, no such thing as genders for those who are in Christ. There still exists male and female. He's not suggesting that there is not ethnicity in Christ. There is still Jew and there is still Greek. He's not suggesting that there is not economic conditions. There are still those who are free and there are those who are slaves. He is saying that in Christ, those things no longer really matter. It's why the church, beloved, for centuries has been described as an organization of misfits, Gathered among the church across the globe and here in Sedalia this morning are some of the richest of the rich and some of the poorest of the poor. Gathered in the church are people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Gathered in the church are men and women and children, and all are gathered on equal footing before God because they are all in Christ Jesus. There's nothing altogether special about any one of us this morning. There's nothing altogether special about me this morning or you this morning. What is special about us is the treasure that we hold inside, the person and work of Jesus Christ that we know as the gospel. In a world that hates to draw any distinctions, the apostle does so. He says, no, there are clearly two different groups of folks. There are those who are earthen, ordinary vessels, but they hold this great treasure inside. And then there are the others. There are those who are in Christ, and then there are those who are not. That's not a popular message in our present world because, again, in our philosophical worldview and age, we live in a time where distinctions and contrast are not to be drawn. But Paul says that these things are necessary to be known because that fear of the Lord, he says, causes me to persuade the others. In other words, if I may use different terms again, the Spirit of God, He converts me. It's His responsibility to convert a person. It is His work of changing a person from what they are into something that they were not and something that is altogether different. That is, it is the Spirit of God's job to convert me, to change me from that which God hates to that which God loves, from an object of His wrath to an object of His pleasure. But you and I are given the responsibility, Paul says in this moment, to persuade. I don't have to convert this morning. I have to persuade others. It's not my responsibility. It's the Spirit of God's responsibility to convert a person, but it is my responsibility to endeavor in the long and arduous task of engaging in dialogue, back and forth discussion, and the process of persuasion to draw a person down the road. The Spirit of God uses you, uses me, uses other believers in His kingdom business by allowing us to be the avenue by which, or the agent by which, persuasion takes place and the person is ultimately converted through the supernatural work of the Spirit of God. The aim of the believer, success for the believer in this life, success for the church, the purpose of the believer and the church is to be engaged in the business of persuading the others. In other words, we oftentimes live in this world as though it is us against the world. But I said many weeks ago in our Roman series that that mentality must change it is not us against the world. It is us going into the world. It is us being about the business of going and persuading others 
trusting certainly God's sovereign work of conversion, we go about the business of drawing others to Christ. And from that business, there can be no retreat, beloved. It is for that reason that our church's vision statement, for example, is making Jesus famous one life at a time. It is our ambition that each and every member and regular attender of Cornerstone Baptist Church would see their life as a singular focus and responsibility of persuading others to come to Jesus Christ. Quickly this morning, Paul reinforces that purpose in the next lines. In verse number 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again. Church, the church is in the midst of an existential struggle, and I'm talking about the global church here in this moment. There are those who are trying to delegitimize the gospel by destroying the character of the apostle and his word in our present context. Destroy the man and you destroy his message. But Paul said that he would not be engaged in that battle. He would not defend himself. The gospel was too precious. The gospel was too valuable for him to be engaged in fruitless conversations. The approach was an approach of the old way. He would not live in the past. He would not succumb to the pressures of diving into the mud with them, but rather he would instead rise above that. He would hold the gospel as precious to him, and we face that similar to temptation today. We live in a world of, for lack of any better term this morning, and I don't mean this the wrong way, we live in a culture of influencers. We live in a world that wants to promote self, or we live in a world where people are paid to to promote or to promote a brand, as it were. And Paul's message that the church, you are, as believers in Christ, you're supposed to be different. You don't promote yourself You have a brand to promote, and that brand you promote is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your job, your singular focus in life as a parent, as a father, as a a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as a worker, as an employer, as a student in the school, as an educator, your singular focus must be for the proclamation of Jesus Christ, for the promotion of Jesus Christ and the gospel that he's proclaimed. Because of verse 14, the love of Christ, he says, controls us, or your translation might read, compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. In other words, because of Christ, who I was is now dead and gone. That man doesn't live any longer after conversion. Because of Christ, the normal stereotypes and markers which define existence are dead and gone. They don't matter anymore. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. It's in the possessive tense. It means that it's not my love for Christ that controls me. In other words, I'm not so in love with Christ that I go and do these things, but rather it is Christ's love for me that controls me. It is his love for me that motivates me. It is his love for me which determines my steps. It is his love for me which lays out my future, my decisions, and the direction of my life. He loved me so much. He loved me enough to come and die my death on the cross of Calvary. And that type of love demands a response on my part. It compels me. It controls me. Paul says it directs me. And what does it direct me to do? Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. How does Christ's love for me compel me, or how does it control me? It compels me to no longer live for myself. 
It compels me or it controls me to live for something greater than me, namely someone greater than me. It compels me, it controls me to live for the one who died to save me. My life ceases to be, in a word, my life. All of this talk about how God wants us to find out who we are in our present age. The self-help guidance about how God just wants us to be happy with ourselves. We are told today in our present age that God just wants us to find something that makes us happy and live in in life and live for that singular purpose. Beloved, that is theological garbage. (laughs) Who I am is a great sinner in need of grace. That I receive grace is the only thing that I have special about me. And I didn't receive that grace because I was special. I was an earthen vessel, a jar of clay. I received that grace because Christ loved me and he gave himself up for me despite my wickedness, despite my failures, despite my mistakes. We are not a special people in and of ourselves. Anybody feel like you made a mistake this week? Any failures this week? This would be a great opportunity for testimonies, right? Even the preacher feels like a failure this week. Uh, I I could give you a a whole host of failures, but one of them would have just been Friday night. A long day and a long week uh, culminated, and most everybody had left, and some were cleaning everything up. And and Zariah, wanting to play a game with me, comes over with her face painted as a tiger, and whoever's idea that was to do that uh, needs to, you know, I mean, we need to have a discussion before next year because now Dad's got to take it home and clean it all off. She decides she's going to come up and scare me as I'm holding something more precious than gold. I am holding pumpkin cake made by, uh, by, made by uh, uh, actually I can't remember who it was made by now, but it was really good. And I'm holding this and I'm ready to take it home and I am literally licking it and tasting it, knowing it's going to taste so sweet. And she comes up and she goes, roar, and hits the plate and the pumpkin cake in slow motion just goes flying through the air. And I watch it tumble down to the ground. And in all the theological control I had, I said, that wasn't a good decision, Zariah. No, I grabbed her by the shoulders and said, what is wrong with you? I already know the answer to that question, but I'll leave that for another sermon another day. And then as I grab her by the shoulders and say, what is wrong with you? It dawns on me, I'm talking to a church member who's watching me say this to my child, right? She already knew what was wrong with her. But I know in that moment that I have failed. I've messed up. We've all failed. We've all messed up. What is special about us is not any perfection, but what is special about us is that we have found the grace and the forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ. And the only logical response to that type of forgiveness is to spend my days not in self-promotion, but in Christ proclamation. Success in the Christian life is to be found in Christ, to be supremely happy in Christ, and to be about the business of persuading others to be happy in Christ as well. The victory, church, that I want you to aim for, the victory we aim for is the light that goes out into the darkness, and Christ has given us the responsibility of being that light. He told his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is my simple invitation to you this morning. I was talking to Brother Jeff a couple of weeks ago about trends and funerals, and we were talking specifically about how funerals 
just aren't very attended these days like they once were. There even seems to be a little bit of a loss of reverence or even respect out of the solemnness of the occasion. Anybody else notice that along the way? I think part of the reason for that is that as a culture, we've lost a sense of reverence. And even if I might say it like this, we have lost a certain sense of solemnness when it comes to life itself. We want everything to be upbeat. We want everything to be happy. We want everything to be fast-paced. But life is more solemn than that. With all of the attempts to change God's great design in the world, what we've actually done as a culture is we've devalued God's creation. We've devalued life. We've said that there is no real grand purpose, that the only purpose is that there is no purpose. We've bought into a motto that says, live, laugh, drink, and be merry. This is God's great desire for you. I'll never forget many years ago, LeBron James being asked what his purpose in life was. He said, God made me to play basketball. If you stop and think about what he said in that moment, it's really quite a sad statement, isn't it? God's great design for you is to put a little orange ball into a small cylinder hoop more times than another guy. That is God's great design for your life. I want you to contrast that for a moment against Eric Little, the famed Olympian, who said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. He understood something that the king needed to learn. That if he was fast, it was because God designed him to be fast. And running wasn't about earning the precious metals. Running was about feeling the presence and the pleasure of the creator. As that creator watched his creation do what he was designed to do. His purpose in life was to please the creator. Made me think of Payne Stewart after the 1999 U.S. Open. He'd lost in 1998. He had held the lead going into the final nine holes. And I believe if my memory serves me correctly, he held the lead by some three shots, something that very rarely uh, uh, falls apart at a professional level in golf, especially on the final nine holes. And yet he fell apart, and Lee Jansen would go on to win the 1998 U.S. Open. And so coming into 1999, he had led from the very beginning and all the way until the very end, but there were several bumps along the way. And specifically, as he came to the back nine, he had a one-stroke lead. And then after, I believe it was hole number 11, he was one stroke down. He'd fallen two shots. And the interviewer afterwards, after he won, asked him how it was that he was able to keep his composure in comparison to 1998 when he lost it. In his famed response, and in the only way he knew how to illustrate, he said, I think God designed me to be great at this game. And so what I did was I just had confidence in him. I had confidence that he had given me everything I needed to be able to win today. I had confidence that he had a purpose and a plan, and if it wasn't for me to win, then it was not my fault really, but his. And he said with a sly grin, I had great confidence that God had designed me for this sport. And so rather than upholding and believing in my ability, I just trusted the creator to do what he had done in me. I'm not fast, beloved, this morning, but I can feel the pleasure of the creator In those moments when I do what he designed me to do, I understand a little bit what Payne Stewart must have meant, what Eric Little must have meant when he said that when he ran, he could feel the pleasure of God. I can feel that pleasure, that same pleasure when I do what the Creator designed me to do. And beloved, that is my invitation to you. I would invite you to feel that pleasure, that 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 pleasure of the Creator when the creation lives out its design purposes. What is that design purpose? Well, God made you to refuse 
any attempt to promote yourself. God made you instead to be compelled to promote Christ in all things. That is in our victory. That is what our victory is and from which there is no retreat. That is our end. Our victory as a church, as a person, as an individual believer in Christ, our victory is in the persuasion of others to come to Jesus Christ. When you're at the end of life, what do you want your family to say? As they stand there in the presence of others, do you want them to highlight your sense of humor? Do you want them to highlight your accomplishments? Do you want them to highlight your achievements or medals won or grades earned? Or do you want them to say, this soldier fulfilled his mission. He persuaded others to come to Christ. A dear friend received a Bible this week, and I wrote the opening line with something along the lines of, I thank you for showing me how precious Jesus is to you. Beloved, that's what I want at the end of it all. That will be what defines victory in my life. It will be what defines victory for my family. Did I show others how precious Jesus is to me? Stand with me reverently and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity. This concludes Pastor Chris Guffey's series, No Regrets, No Reserve, No Retreat. If you'd like to know more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us on the web at www.cornerstonesedalia.com.